What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. All right, welcome again to another edition of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, our IAPH podcast. And we're just a few months into 2021, but there's obviously a lot to digest. And while the recent events of the last year or so have underscored really highly stratified fractures in society that are surprising to many Americans, it's not so surprising for for many of us, including the outstanding scholars that we have joining us today. So the legacies of racism that undergird the United States and fuel the inequities that we see in health and socioeconomics and many other population outcomes that we're interested in are really rooted in these these legacies of racism. So if we want to to make change and we want to get towards equality, we really have to think about ways to disrupt those historical legacies of racism. So as I mentioned before, we're pleased to be joined by two really outstanding guests who have an outstanding set of work and some current projects that really have a lot to bear on on what we're doing right now or what we're living through right now. So Professor David Cunningham is Chair of Sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. His research focuses on racial contention and his legacies. His book, Klansville, USA, The Rise and Fall of the Civil Rights Era Ku Klux Klan, as as well as ongoing projects on legacies of racial violence and policing of organized white supremacy, many different aspects of your research agenda that we're really excited to hear about you from, hear about um, from you. And then we also have Professor Jeff Ward, who is a professor of African and African-American studies at Washington University, also a faculty affiliate with the Department of Sociology and American Cultural Studies program. His scholarship examines the racial politics of social control and the pursuit of racial justice historically and contemporarily. His current projects examine broader histories of racial violence, their legacies, and implications for repair. So Professor Ward and Professor Cunningham, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you. Yeah, and like uh, Daryl just said, like we're really excited to have y'all in to give us like a bit of a different perspective than we're kind of typically used to as health researchers. I think the current moment has really kind of, well, maybe like horrifyingly for some people, has like made some health researchers realize that their work is very political, right? And that it's very conditional on the current moment, right? And I think like, especially in the past four years, like a lot of us have kind of, a lot of folks that maybe have never considered race as an important topic for their work, are beginning to kind of grapple with the long, uh, with the idea that longstanding racism has kind of impacted their scientific worldviews, uh, their methods, their interpretation and use of data, and so on and so forth. Uh, so like we said, we're really glad to have both of you with us today to help uh, kind of fill in some gaps for our listeners and chat about the history kind of underlying uh, where we at, 
where we're at today, um, and also kind of the long kind of persistent arm of historical racial violence. So in that spirit, let's talk a little bit about the world to start things off. And so our first question for you is, uh, like, how does history affect the kind of current resurgence, if you want to call it that, uh, of white supremacy? Um, and is there uh, kind of actually kind of a resurgence in um, kind of this ideology or have recent events just kind of nudged along uh, what's always been right underneath the surface? <laughs> yeah, I, I can start. I, I um you know, I appreciate this question and it seems especially pressing today. Um, I, I would say that one thing that, that I think Jeff and I have both focused on uh, for a long time is, is really about the continuity in investments in the racial order. So when we think about the kinds of expressions we're seeing today, you know, this is one manifestation, but if we think about the way in which the racial order has been enforced historically and today, um, one of the things that we do really focus on is how that kind of continuity is maintained. And, you know, and so, so one thing that, that I always think is if you're looking at extremism, if you're looking at white nationalism, you know, you can also be looking at things like this week, we see all of these voter suppression measures that are coming through state legislatures and mm -hmm. things like this. And these are really manifestations of the same kind of network and impetus here. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I think is important to focus on is that this is a continuous stream and both the forms that it takes and who it is that's doing the expressing may change at different points, but um, focusing on that continuity, I think is really helpful to understand any specific aspect we look at. You know, I, I think that related to this um, point about continuity and also your framing questions about disciplines and um, uh, I think it's really interesting and important to think about how, talk about how our disciplines are caught up in this history and its legacies. Uh, these, so what, what, what I'll talk more about today and I'm sure David as well is how we, you know, basically legacies are describing these structures of inequality that are rooted in histories of racial violence. And, and part of uh, how our disciplines themselves are shaped and implicated is in their practice of looking away from or from, or practice of obfuscating and, and even actively denying the continuity that David talked about. It was interesting, um, you know, in the midst of the, uh, to see how in the midst of the, uh, the, the global reckoning with white supremacism and this increased commitment to dismantling racism, people at universities started saying, you know, we need to teach more, we need to bring this into our classes. And there was an interesting article in, uh, in I think the Chronicle of Higher Education that uh, based, the title of which was basically to begin um, teaching, to begin incorporating anti-racism in your work now, start with asking why you haven't already. Mm -hmm. And so this is the inheritance, I think. But uh, the last thing I wanna say about this is, I also, I also um, have some optimism that if and when we bring our disciplines to bear on these questions, um, uh, we, we gain tremendous capacity to un understand them uh, and to address them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We had another guest a couple podcasts ago talk about kind of even the standards baked within academic institutions are inherently like racist or they don't, they don't encourage, right? Um, thinking about dismantling racist structures so like from the jump, right? It's, you know, faculty, instructors, students aren't encouraged to think about some of these things thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. um, and then to Dave's point, 
Uh, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot as a health researcher is that oftentimes we uh, we study the extremes in health, right? Like, because in order for us to find significant effects, statistically, right, we need like a shock, right? And so that's what I do a lot of. And so we pay attention to the extremes of things, but we don't often see the everyday that's happening and how that wears and tears on people's health. And I think that's an interesting parallel to make with as we think about racial injustice in this country is like we pay attention sometimes to the extremes we don't see the kind of the everyday that wears and tears on people um and like what that means um yeah um so like to that point I guess one that I had was if you could both speak a little bit to um the attempted coup on January 6th like how you all saw it um you know as folks who study this um and it's kind of a broad question, but I think what we have in our minds is, you know, was this coup like the last hurrah for white supremacists, right? Who are like stamping their feet, right? At this election, right? Or should we read it more complexly as it's gonna evolve into something more? Um, what do we know about the history of like kind of white supremacist coups in these ways? Um, especially as I think as a nation, we're trying to pick up the pieces, trying to like, read the room, figure out what, what the pulse is and how do we move forward? Like, what is your interpretation analysis and like, how do you kind of see things um, with respect to the to the coup where we go next? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish I could say optimistically that this is kind of the last hurrah, of, you know, the kind of desperate last expression of, of <laughs> a dying tantrum, yeah. Um, we solved it. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I do think to some degree that, that you know, you're you're right in that sense, and in, in in the sense that um, this, in some ways, is a a particular kind of expression that signals a sense of weaknesses or kind of weakening, um, mm -hmm. at least institutional traction or a perception of such. So, you know, we do tend to see one of the climates within which we tend to see extremism rising, um, and kind of public violence rising, and things like this are when there's a sense that uh, the kind of more quotidian practices that really maintain the racial order um, are, are not necessarily going to hold. And so to the extent that there's that perception, you know, maybe that's the optimistic take of seeing this. Um, but, you know, I, I also think that it's coexisting and co-residing with a, a, a bunch of other more quotidian dynamics. So when you talk before we focus on the extremes, I think um, in some ways, exerting too much attention to the insurrection can be insidious in the sense mm -hmm. that it diverts our attention. You know, I mentioned earlier the voter suppression yeah. measures that are, you know, flowing mm -hmm. through actually disconcertingly straightforwardly and quickly through right. different state legislatures. And, you know, I, I think that these things are, are coexisting and, um, you know, it's important to, to zero in on, you know, when we talk structurally, we talk institutionally, um, these are differing institutional forms, but in effect work in concert. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's important to have an analysis of the insurrection and not to treat it as something that, um, you know, really doesn't have political significance, but also not to focus too strongly and tightly around that particular action. Yeah, I, I, I like, you know, I think the, um, I, I do, I agree with everything David said, but I, I do think there was a bit of a kind of um, desperate, like belch of a dying um, model, an idea, uh, like, you know, this desperation among 
you know, this, uh, the whole proud boys, white nationalist, you won't replace us thing is to me, and to significant extent, um, just absurd, right? And, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's sort of a desperate um, demonstration of an absurd social agenda, uh, but nevertheless, a long existing, long-standing foundational one in this country. Uh, but, but, I, but, but I do think um, also, and even more so, it was, it, we have to think about the ways it was influential as a social movement and how, you know, how has it, how did that absurd display and, and a violent, deadly attack on, um, uh, and what it revealed of our police, of police culture and, uh, and practice, you know, what it, what, um, how has it shaped our political culture, uh, further institutionalizing perhaps, um, or sustaining the influence of, of uh, white supremacist ideology in government, for example, by um, setting um, setting the conditions for someone like you know Josh Hawley from Missouri to sort of decide that he's going to identify himself as the leader of the neo Confederates or whatever the idea there is exactly, um, and what will, what will be the implications for healthcare in Missouri and in other states around the country, health policy as if the because so I think it is. It is a really, I don't, you know, the last thing I want to say about this is related to this, what I was going to say, I, I think we will be asking this question for a long time, like what did this event mean and, and how has it affected our um, civil society and uh, policy. Um, and I'm reminded here of the Wilmington 1898 coup that was successful, racial massacre, um, I'm involved in the uh, and commemoration of that event in part because I'm a descendant of one of the African-American families uh, affected by that. Uh, and, and we were talking the other day and Wilmingtonians, you know, residents of Wilmington uh, were describing in our call um, that, that this event was sort of disembodying of the society. Um, it, it's, it's another way that we, sociologists, other social scientists talk about alienation, you know, and exclusion, but they, they use this, I thought, really interesting social ecological notion of, of disembodiment to describe what happened in 1898 and, which is, and what is still affecting Wilmington. And I think it's to some extent the, um, the coup and what it is representative of the larger surge of white nationalism and the organizing around that. Um, uh, you know, is um, is another again to David's point about continuity, another moment of disembodiment, um, of social disembodiment that that we have to reckon with, we have to deal with. Yeah, yeah I think that's a good pivot point. I wanted to ask David a little bit more about some of the research that you've conducted and and written about. So you write about white supremacy and white supremacist organizations. And I'm wondering if, and you mentioned at the very beginning of our episode here, like this this continuity, this continuum. Um, but I'm wondering just in a, in a succinct manner, which I know is impossible, how does extremism occur? So are these movements, are they driven by just outright hate? Is it grievance over people's station in life? Is the exposure to uh, t 
toxic media environment? What do you think is like kind of undergirding some of these these movements? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know everything that you've mentioned is going to matter to some degree. Um, you know, I think the first thing about extremism that's that's important to understand, especially right wing extremism, and in, in this case, is um, that you know Jeff's talking about disembodiment and all, but there's there's always a um, when we think about extremism, it's an expression that can never be seen as detached from kind of the overall political body, right? And so these mm -hmm. these are, are folks who are uh, who are going to be um, politically active or politicized in some form, you know, in a, in a longer runway. And when we see extremism, it tends to be channeled in that direction. And, you know, traditionally social scientists focus on particular kinds of environments. They think about uh, environments where people perceive that there's some sort of status loss or some sort of advantage that they had had previously is melting away or becoming fragile in some sense. And so, um, you know, there, there are these kind of broad structural contexts and environments that people think about um, as producing extremism. But, but alongside that too, I think it's important to, to see extremism as having kind of two channels that are always coexisting. And what we need to focus on is the balance of them. Um, and the first of those channels is what we saw on January 6th and what we've you know, seen uh, in Charlottesville and in a disconcertingly large uh, number of other kinds of events over the last few years are these collective public expressions. You know, People who are willing to be out publicly often in significant numbers yeah. um, and to be outrightly stating these particular extremist views and advancing them as something that the society should be embracing and organized around. And so, you know, when we see the Proud Boys on the streets, when we see, um, you know, white nationalists of all stripes in Charlottesville, when we see the insurrectionists kind of in the name of quote unquote democracy out there and in the name of freedom being out there. I mean, these are these large collective expressions um, but when we think of the foundation upon which that becomes possible, we have this sort of second channel of extremism, which is this more continuous underground instantiation, this less visible organizing that often occurs in kind of more intimate spaces. You know, the white supremacy for decades at this point has emphasized focusing on family, focusing on tight-knit community, and oftentimes not publicly expressing those views, but making sure they're reproduced behind the scenes. And, um, you know, our, our colleague, uh, Pete Simi, who teaches at Chapman University, um, talks about what he calls active abeyance. So this idea when, when we think below the surface, when we think about abeyance periods, it's like, well, what do movements do when they don't feel like they have the power to be out there in large numbers publicly? And you know, he thinks of white supremacy as that continuous foundation. And then in moments where the political climate is more hospitable, we see this rise of the more public side of it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, what I worry about with conventional social science explanations is they're always explaining the extreme public instances. You know, I know you were mentioning before about in public health to think about the extremes in terms of uh, health issues. Um, and I think people that study social movements do the same thing. You know, they count events, they count numbers of people, and they kind of miss or at least underemphasize that foundational current that's really enabling that um, in a more continuous way. Yeah, that's really interesting because when I was starting off my dissertation, like circa early aughts, 2000s, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I wanted to scrape Twitter data to look at like people's experience of immigration policy. And I was scraping Twitter data 
And I started to see like all of the crazy like militia men on the border and mm -hmm. like just like wild stuff. And I was like, what is this? Like, man, these people are wild. And then, you know, I wasn't studying social movements or sociology or really social media. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I like totally ignored it, and, like kept moving on with my life and did like a super granola -y public health dissertation. And now I'm like, ah, I could have, <laughs> I should have listened to this because it's so true. Like back in 2012, people weren't paying attention to it. And now I see this political moment, like mm -hmm. they were there all along, you know, and in their, you know, really like innocuous avenues, like, and people, and they, you know, found Buell essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that 2012 period you're mentioning was was so key. You know, I, I feel like people pay attention to, say, the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center, who's, you know, counting a uh, number mm -hmm. of extremists and hate organizations, and they get a lot of traction and they have kind of a publicity machine around it. But people pay attention to them in moments where they can kind of see this happening on the street. And if you look at their graphs over time, I mean, 2012 was a peak period. Um, um, of when these militia movements were really active and all the kinds of groups that you're talking about. Um, and, you know, if you look now, the kind of irony is that, that uh, when we look in the Trump years, we do see many more kind of over and documented hate actions. Um, but if you look at the kind of graph of hate groups over time, you see roughly uh, a stable kind of playing field in that period. It's in these periods where we tend to pay less attention, where the political climate isn't hospitable to those groups, where they're doing the, the behind the scenes organizing and that graph actually goes up in terms of mm. number or, of organizations forming and things. Interesting. Yeah. So things now to like kind of pay attention to like yeah. white supremacy, like 20.0 or wherever we're at now. <laughs> Um, Jeff, let's turn uh, to you. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just, I wanted to pick up on this. Um, I think David's helpful point about, I mean, it's very helpful to think about this, uh, this kind of continuity and these moments of visibility. And, but I, and I, I want to connect it back to the point I was making about disciplines. And, and, you know, I'm sure we've all had the experience of students saying to us, why did, and we've said ourselves, why did I never, how did I never hear about this? Mm. Um, you know, how come I never heard about Tulsa? Uh, why don't I know anything about lynchings in St. Louis, um, mm -hmm. the McIntosh case? And, 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 and so one of the things that's of interest to me here is how this kind of, you know, a colleague in political science, Clissa Hayward talks about um, motivated ignorance, I think is the term, maybe something related to that, mm. but it's a political, uh, strategy and um, how has this generational look kind of ignorance uh, and mis misrepresentation of reality um, maintained the kind of solvency of this white supremacist political far right ideology and mobilizing kind of framework? Um, so this idea that that white people are the legitimate sort of inheritors of advantage is rooted in a long history. You know, what sociologist uh, Charles Tilley calls the durable inequality that has been shaped by histories of accumulation through disaccumulation, which are often violent events, not events that include lynching and banishment, but not always. So there are other things as well, like redlining. So um, these histories of opportunity hoarding and social closure have 
politically socialized generation after generation of um, white Americans, uh, not only men, but um, uh, white Americans at large, to, to see this, uh, this sort of country as theirs. And immigration laws played a major role here in very explicitly defining this as a white country um, where you know, Kitty Calavita writes about immigration law socializing white Americans to see themselves as, as quote, masters of national space. Mm. So, so if we've organized a society that has routinely over time told white Americans that they are masters of national space, it is um, not at all surprising to see white Americans mobilizing as masters of national space, <laughs> you know, sit in the back of pickup trucks, you know, and, and I just, you know, anyway, um, I think this is why we, why we have to take this, why it's worthwhile to take a long view um, of, of, the, of the conditions we're, uh, we're discussing and studying and hoping to address. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just to interject on that real quick on both of your points, um, like why do you think it is that, uh, you know, like both of you just really eloquently explained that like uh, all of this is like a kind of a continuous historical kind of like operating in the background process, but we do focus on, um, or there's a lot of like kind of good social theory kind of like to motivate that. But then especially, I'm going to call it our health folks here, like when we do see kind of like kind of health researchers trying to make the connection between kind of historical processes and kind of historical violence and kind of contemporary outcomes, it's like count up the number of people that, I don't know, got called like a slur, like mm -hmm. the density of people that call a slur and relate that to mortality and that's it, right? So it's like the actual kind of like quantitative and empirical side of that doesn't quite match the kind of richness and a way that you two were just describing, um, like actually this kind of like underlying bedrock of white supremacy. And so like in all your years doing this, um, like you have an explanation for why we keep going back to these uh, kind of uh, designs that don't necessarily get at what like, uh, you know, the social theory would suggest that we should look at. Well, I, I, you know, I, it's a great question. It's a vexing question. You know, it's, the, it's really a major motivator of our um, special issue that we're co-editing and um, um, you, you all have contributed to, you know, on clarifying the presence of the past. We need new, we need to push the, the kind of, um, we need to push the work in this area, the, the modeling work, and also the theoretical work about, you know, what, you know, how do mechanisms, how, what are the mechanisms of, of yeah. generational trauma, for example, and, you know, just to, to take up an example, and I think, I, I think some of the richest empirical and theoretical insights are in fields like uh, psychoanalysis, and, and, and I have not seen really any effort to translate the psychoanalytic work on trauma in a social science kind of context, but I think there's that's an example of one of the many um, voids. I think the, the short answer to why why this keeps happening, why this is why this limitation exists, is because um, is because we we just have very imperfect kind of you know measures of. Uh, of the phenomena we believe to be important here. And so we, we inevitably, and I think this is probably true of every, virtually every social um, research agenda, we grab what looks 
most helpful and, mm -hmm. and, and try to make the most of it. Um, uh, but I, but I, do, I also want, I think, um, I, I think there is, as I said earlier, I think there is, I think there is much more we can do when we, when, when we bring the, the strengths of different disciplines to bear. And, and just a number of disciplines um, have just been told, you know, there's been no engagement with these, this kind of work around legacies. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm, we're hoping that this, that this issue and other things we're doing here at WashU and elsewhere will, um, will, will begin to change that. Yeah, David, did you want to chime in about our, our reticence in, in the field of, in, in these broad social science fields? I mean, you study histories of movements and to Michael's point, um, thinking about just this, it seems like people are not interested in engaging in a meaningful way with the past. And maybe it's like Jeff mentioned, maybe it's because we just measure what we can. Um, but even beyond that, are, are especially within the fields under population health, it seems like people are really stuck and mm -hmm. even trying to think about and theorize about what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think these are all important points and I, I would agree with everything that Jeff's saying as well. And, you know, and, and what you're mentioning too about, you know, kind of conventional ways of thinking about, well, how can we proxy things and what, what data is going to be available? And, um, you know, I also think from just trying to do this sort of work and thinking about the kinds of things that reviewers come back with and editors mm -hmm. come back with, I mean, there's, um, you know, I, I think it's, um, I'm always of two minds because I think it's really important to ask hard questions to really push us to theorize this in, in richer ways and think about, well, what are the mechanisms that connect historical acts to contemporary outcomes and things like this? I mean, it's, it's really important to be elucidating those and kind of thinking about those connections. Um, but I often also feel on the other side of that coin is that there's kind of a uh, what what motivates some of those kind of hard and continued questions is is a significant resistance to, you know, the the uh, a belief in the importance of engaging those kinds of long, especially longer run connections when we think about historical mm -hmm. legacies and, you know, the the sense we're um, elucidating um, a long string of mechanisms that kind of bring us to where we are today kind of is a way to obfuscate this this sort of uh, fairly significant skepticism among a lot of folks that this actually is significant. And, mm. you know, the sense that we're just pulling on some sort of methodological artifact in, in order to make a politicized point or something like that. And so, you know, I, I feel like both we, we want to do a better job of advancing the way that we can demonstrate these kinds of processes and findings, but um, also kind of push past a starting point, which is one of skepticism by a lot of folks who are kind of gatekeeping these literatures and mm -hmm. kind of thinking about what the important questions are and why we should be asking them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important point, yeah. So as we're thinking about like the long arm of racism or racial inequality and kind of documenting that methodologically, I think there's a lot of conversations happening, especially right now about reparations, reconciliation, like righting the wrongs. Um, I think to Jeff's point around like acknowledging our history, reteaching it in new ways. Um, and Jeff, you spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, what advice do you think you can offer for our nation's leaders, for 
university presidents, you know, all of these people who are the us, right, population health scientists who are, are, you know, heading our classrooms in terms of thinking about how do we imbue reconciliation processes um, into some of our institutions and our social structures, like what should we avoid? What are some of the hazard signs? Uh, I'm curious what you think. Because there's a lot of kumbaya happening, but what is like the meaningful kumbaya that needs to happen here? You know, I don't think we know the answer to that question. And, mm. and it's part of why when in coming to WashU, I was interested in, in the Brown School as a potential place of site of collaboration. I know there's, a, you know, many of the uh, folks there do evaluation research and, and you know, for example, and um, it's, a, it's a major question. What, what um, you know, what works in terms yeah. of, and, and, and really, it, and there's, an, there's a compelling argument that, that it is, it is uh, that the continuity we, that we've talked about is somewhat permanent. I mean, it's that, you know, they're, they're, we aren't going to dismantle what's, uh, we aren't going to dismantle the durable inequality that I talked about. Yeah. You know, we might change, we, we, and we see, um, you know, a number of, you know, friends, colleagues who are white and anti-racist, you know, committed to addressing these issues but it is so deeply baked into the fabric of our society um, that uh, I think that this inequality related to race does not require um, active extremist kind of mm -hmm. maintenance. Um, and just as an example of that, you know, I would, I would, um, and maybe in a sort of, a, it's gonna sound flip, but it is actually a response to your question. I would, I would imagine, I would urge, um, you know, the government to, in, um, to introduce uh, taxes on pickup trucks and, um, <laughs> and, to, and to address the, the kind of, you know, I love this term, petro-masculinity. Yeah. Um, that, is, that is part of our death spiral as a planet. You know, this consumption, the way that consumption of fossil fuels is bound up with ideas of masculinity, which are also uh, inter, uh, intersect with ideas about race. And so white manliness and its relationship to the pickup truck is something that is um, interesting and important for us, I think, to, to, to grapple with. And, and, and not just pickup trucks, but the whole Hummer, you know, there's somebody driving through our neighborhood recently in like a World War II troop <laughs> transport carrier. That he had his, this white dude that had his kids in the back to get ice cream. <laughs> You know, uh, I'm serious. It was like it was like built to carry like 20 soldiers somewhere. It's, it's in demand at the ice cream shop because it's so cool to demonstrate this power. You know, so yeah. so. But but I want to say one other thing about what we what I would what we need to do and and something I'm you know we're trying to do is you know we don't have a national we don't have anything close to a nationally representative kind of collection of even just sort of what we talked about the limitations of measuring extreme events and counting those we don't we don't have good data on the national story that is inclusive of, of anti-mexican violence and the um you know violence targeting native american asian other latinx populations uh, um pacific islander etc across this vast country we also don't have and we're we're hoping to get some funding to to address both of these simultaneously we also don't have a good record of the redress that is happening all around the country, including mm -hmm. here in St. Louis and parts of Missouri, 
with uh, where people are working with Equal Justice Initiative and its Community Remembrance Project. Mm -hmm. what, what, so we need, we need better measures of those kinds of things. And this relates to the earlier conversation as well um, to complicate our models of legacies of racial violence. What happens in places where, you know, our, our colleague Ryan Gabriel and um, uh, co-author of a paper that looked at how resistance to these legacies mediates the relationship between legacies and uh, between lynching and homicide. Mm. And it's the only study I know of that has done mm. that, uh, but we don't really have good data to do that with. And so we're, one of the things we're trying to do now is um, increase our capacity to analyze those relationships so that we have better answers to this question. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why we enjoy talking to people outside of our fields. Um, Jeff is like a walking quote machine here. Um, <laughs> I'm like, how do you read so much, very, my God? <laughs> very intimidating for as a, as yeah. a fellow scholar of like, wow, this is this is a lot of reading. Step it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that uh, there's there's a lot there. I, I have to remember that. Is it petromasculinity? Petromasculinity, man. Look it up. I have to look it up too. <laughs> I just read it. I, you know, I, I thought it was, it, it's a really important concept, you know, and, yeah. and whenever we're out, out on the roads again, uh, I'm sure we'll, I'm, I'll be thinking a lot about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had never thought about that before. Um, so, and, and one of the joys we, we enjoy um, talking to people outside the field and we, we realize time goes by so, so fast on where we're privileged to have people like you all on the, on the podcast. And, so just a, a couple more questions. And, and we know both of you all have studied aspects of either state-sponsored or some aspects of political violence. And I think one question is on the mind of many Americans, especially historically marginalized groups in, in the United States is how did um, the, it seemed like a lot of the insurgents on January 6th were, were also members of law enforcement or former military. And as Jeff mentioned, you see this troop transport, you know, being driven through a, a pretty affluent neighborhood. Um, what's the connection, you know, for people who don't know this history, what's the connection between, you know, kind of state-sponsored violence and these, these institutions like the police and, and the military? You know, I, I think certainly historically you're going to see uh, a close connection between, um, you know, the, the kinds of um, institutions that we're talking about, the kinds of extremist actions we're talking about. I mean, if we think about the insurgents, I'm just thinking about the headlines that we're seeing this week, you know, as we're talking here about, you know, the large number of law enforcement who are part of the uh, insurgency at the Capitol and, you know, I, I think that's maybe the least surprising observation we could possibly have. I certainly know that there aren't folks in law enforcement who find that surprising that that was the case. And, you know, so the puzzle isn't, you know, how did all those folks end up being, you know, with the insurgents in, in this sense? Um, it, it's more, you know, why is it that we have uh, a state structure if we think about the police and we have this institution here where there is really no point where there is a standard way to express that this is outside of the bounds of law enforcement. You know, so when, when people are being vetted with background checks, when people are being vetted for promotions, um, mm -hmm. when, you know, when we think about all of these points in terms of what is being laid out as 
um, part of one's professional job and what falls outside of that and, and is unacceptable um, within that confines, we don't see any mechanism where white supremacist or white nationalist views or actions are actually incompatible institutionally with being part of law enforcement. And so, mm. you know, we not only see, um, you know, we can think about, well, what are these broader connections between these institutions and these more extremist circles? Um, you know, but the, the, the parallel question is, you know, why is it possible for people to uh, build successful careers in law enforcement where this is not uh, some covert hidden aspect of their personalities, but these are open expressions on the job. Um, and so, you know, building in some uh, uh, infrastructure and some uh, valuation of of uh, you know finding these kinds of vet points and things like that, where this is actually bounded out of the discipline and of the field, um, seems almost like a no-brainer first step. But of course, we know all of the forces that are resisting that, including mm -hmm. police unions that are really going to talk about freedom of expression and all of these kinds of things. And so, um, you know, that that seems like one important aspect of what we've seen over the last month, as people have been surprised or not about uh, some of the fallout of the insurrection. Yeah. Also the military, there was that, they did the analysis, like a lot of the uh, folks who were part of the insurrection or part of some of these movements are either veterans or reservists or whatever. And there's like this whole commission group to try to root out extremism in the military. And I read it and I was like, well, good luck. You know, like how, you know, yeah. I don't know. It, it almost seems part and parcel, right? Jeff, do you have yeah. any thoughts on yeah. this? Yeah, well? I mean, it's, uh, I wrote a paper about white supremacist policing where I was trying to, sort of get into some of this, some of these ideas. And, and, and that was really written for uh, a policing kind of in police policy and reform mm. community that was beginning to talk about reckoning. I should say it was written at them because it wasn't like invited, <laughs> but, but I was at a conference and you know, in, in, the, in the, the, the current the person who kind of famously apologized for the police role and uh, at, at President, former President Obama's urging for the police role in histories of repression, got up and said, you know, police were ba basically said, you know, police were in the wrong place at the wrong time. There were bad laws and we had to enforce them. So I wrote this whole paper about all the extra legal violence mm -hmm. uh, that, that police have routinely engaged in, but also just more thinking more kind of capaciously about what white supremacist policing is, look, that kind of, looks like and it's it's people in uniform and not in uniform you know um it's it's my earlier point about masters of national space and and you know you know the whole karen the sort of you know <laughs> this idea that you are the legitimate authority in any situation where there is a person of color um you know the, the woman who has tackled the kid in new york to get her you know her phone back or whatever you know so I, I think this, I, you saw it right, I agree that the idea that we will somehow root out um, this element is, is I think naive and mm -hmm. maybe it's disingenuous in many cases, but because uh, uh, we, have to, it, we have to acknowledge that our, our national identity is kind of corrupted by this logic, our, 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 our resulting political culture is shaped by this logic. And our police forces, just like Dave was saying about our, our polities, our police forces, our military recruits, who are also tend to be more authoritarian in nature, um, 
you know, uh, to go back to petromasculinity, uh, truck ownership rate, I would imagine, is extremely high in that population relative to other. Uh, but, but, um, uh, but I think, you know, nevertheless, uh, we have to, you know, we, we have to fight for, um, you know, to me, this is a, part, a key part of the fight for equal protection, equal representation. And, and so we have to push against it. And, and, and this is where the measures David was talking about. You know, we've been trying to publish this paper for years on uh, the duty to intervene in policing, and it keeps getting rejected and mm. held back, shot down by policing research gatekeepers, I think. Um, mm. it's a, it's, we're looking at, at the, um, the, the actual laws and policies that require police to intervene in fellow officer misconduct. And which often include um, expressions, expressions of racist ideology uh, in social media and that kind of context, mm. where you would only learn about it if a fellow officer um, took a whistle, an upstanding position, right, and, and, and not a bystanding position. Uh, uh, so those kinds of measures, I think, have, you know, and wh whatever happens with policing or the military, whoever these authorities are, you know, you know I, th I think we, it, it comes back to fighting for political, fighting for um, a broader changes, I think, in the political culture that increase pressure on those elements, create uh, uh, pressures on institutions uh, to ensure protection from the threats of white supremacy. And, and this is what my, the paper was largely about. How you know we think a lot about the actions of white supremacist policing, police racist police violence, for example, um, but but so much of the problem is about inaction, the withholding of protection, um, the the withholding of investigative power of, of honest testimony that would be necessary to convict. And we saw the withholding of action in, in, on June six, which I think is not not was I, I think is fascinating as a kind of example of social psychology and like dissonance. I, I think many of those folks who were there to uphold you know, law and order could not reconcile mm. that idea with the white male, over, predominantly white male aggressors who they've been conditioned to think yeah. of as law abiding people, yeah. the people they are protecting, yeah. not policing. Um, and, and that is to me, indicative of just how profound the problem is that we have to address. Yeah. And one quick thing I'll just say to piggyback on that too, I think that's super important. You know, when we think about January 6th, and if you just watch, you know, there's so much video on um, what everyone was doing that day. And you, you do see, you know, I totally agree with Jeff, you almost in certain instances of that, you see this dissonance kind of playing out where they just kind of let people through, where they do various things that seem very mm -hmm. counter to their role. But on top of that, too, you, we also see the way in which um, these disparities get baked into policing process. And I don't mean policing of crime necessarily, but when we think about how policing of different politicized elements like this play out, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to work on is um, looking back both at the FBI's long history of kind of engaging with and, and suppressing these various uh, groups, predominantly on the left wing. Um, but then also, if you look in a place like Charlottesville and you start looking at the police preparation over the weeks leading to the Unite the Right rally, I mean, one of the things that you see is this systematic 
over-reliance on low quality of, of information and what they call intelligence against uh, left-wing counter-protesters. So they see them as uh, an exaggerated danger and then an inability or unwillingness to listen to high quality intelligence about the danger posed mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. the white nationalists and the racist right. It's really mm -hmm. amazing to see the information that they have in front of them and then yeah. how that turns into an operational plan. It's like watching you know, uh, institutional racism play out minute by minute where <laughs> you see what they have and what they, you know, if you think about, well, how would you weigh these things? And then you see how it translates to an operational plan which baked into it, uh, is all the biases that we see play out in the moment, you know, and we can often reduce it to what police are doing in that moment, but it actually becomes part of this operational plan that was, you know, basically reinforcing that disparity from day one when they when they began that that preparation. So it's really insidious in terms of how how both of these sides uh, come together in these sorts of instances. All right, so I think to wind things down because we've been going for. I don't even know how long, but we can keep talking forever. <laughs> so like, to start winding things down, y'all just mentioned some work um, that I think a lot of our uh, listeners would be interested in. Um, but do you have anything else like really pressing that you're kind of currently working on or that's in it about to come out um, that our listeners should keep an eye on? Well, well, one thing that, that Jeff and I have been working on and have had the benefit of, of, uh, of uh, collaborating with you all on in, in some instances is we have a um, a special issue and Jeff referenced this earlier of the annals of, of course I'm going to get this wrong and annals of the American <laughs> Society of Political and Social Science I'm sure I butchered that but it's a uh, it's a it's a valuable all the words that, were that, there yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly um, that has a lot of traction uh, both among academics but also really seeks to get in the hands of policymakers. So it kind of crosses both of those bounds. And we have a forthcoming special issue this year focused on legacies of racial violence. Um, you know, and, and Daryl, you have, you have a, a great paper that really sort of centers a critical race theory perspective about how we can uh, tell these stories and have it relate to these, these health outcomes, which is both about what we need to pay attention to and how we need to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. um, and Mike, we, we've really benefited from your work thinking about contemporary health uh, outcomes like opioid uh, deaths and vulnerability and how it relates to these broader histories. But, um, but we've, we've brought together you know, 15 or 16 uh, different scholars from a variety of disciplines. And they, we've really been trying to do a lot of what you've been asking about today is you know, how can we further this overall research program? Um, but what are the various perspectives that can be brought to bear that really expand the ways we think about these things and the range of people who are in that conversation? So we're looking forward to have, having a compendium of, of this great new work coming out, uh, I think, by this summer. Cool. And I'll just mention that, uh, you know, I've been, you know, two things. One is that David and I have been working with a number of other folks from St. Louis in, on uh, what, we, in, in what we call the Reparative Justice Coalition of St. Louis, which is you know, initially focused on, uh, we've, we formed a community remembrance project in partnership with the Equal mm. Justice Initiative and we'll begin uh, with uh, commemoration of the 1836 lynching of Francis McIntosh, um, which is an incredible case for us to remember and to, um, to, 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 and to talk about, you know, to just discuss for a lot of the reasons we've, we've, we've uh, 
we've been discussing today, including the, the point uh, that Abraham Lincoln made in the wake of McIntosh's lynching and Elijah Lovejoy's subsequent murder, the abolitionist uh, who defended, uh, who argued on McIntosh's behalf, uh, Lincoln's point that, that, uh, that, uh, that forbearance of, of white supremacist violence would degrade uh, our rule of law and the legitimacy of the state. Uh, he made this prediction in the mid 1800s and we are seeing it play out still today. So, th so that's one thing I wanna mention and just invite people to look, look, that, uh, look up that group and join us if you're interested. The other thing is I just, that I'm excited about is just the, all the work that I've been, um, been able to be involved in with on our campus with the, um, thinking particularly of the libraries and the museum, the Kemper Museum and the, and the libraries that are um, where they are really working to develop their collections, which are incredible in many respects in terms of understudying these issues, but to organize those collections uh, in ways that make engagement with these questions of, you know, empire and enslavement in their wake um, uh, more accessible to us in teaching and research and engagements with, uh, with community. So the efforts to decolonize archival collections, for example, and, and museum collections by recontextualizing work, a lot of the same things we see happening around monuments are happening within yeah. those sites. And, and I think that's um, really going to increase our um, our, our, our ability to make contributions in this area, uh, at the, you know, going forward. So I'm excited about that. We'll definitely be on the lookout for those. Yeah. Well, thank you all for uh, joining us today and um, discussing your work and and again the the relevance of of the work that you all are doing to our contemporary times in this. This historical moment that's playing out in front of us in a way that I think many of us who even studied these issues couldn't have anticipated just a few months ago. And so I'm um, really grateful to Professors Cunningham and Ward for making the time to join us today. And we're grateful for your contributions to our podcast and to our listeners and population health researchers who can hopefully um, pick up the, the analyst issue that will come out and and think about some new ways to, to understand these, these issues. And to our listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you again for listening to Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. Thank you. Thank you, all.